Hi there, I'm Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation, and this is the Space for You podcast, our series of conversations with the various men and women who are part of today's space community and driving it forward to do even greater things. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Crudis via Zoom, who lives in the United Kingdom. And Sarah is an accomplished space journalist, international TV host, and an award-winning author. In fact, she is the author of a brand new book called Look Up that has a absolutely wonderful foreword by Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins. We'll find out about that here shortly. But Sarah is not just an award-winning author and journalist. As cool as that background may be, Sarah brings a couple other superpowers with her as she has an academic background in astrophysics and is a global thought leader in the growing commercial space sector. So that gives her even more gravity in a universe of possibilities that are going on here. So many of you will probably recognize Sarah's name as well as voice when you hear it here because she's been the host on Discovery Channel and Science Channel's contact program, which is seen in the United States as well as internationally. She's also a leading voice on space on various other television shows in the United Kingdom, as well as the United States, regularly appearing on Sky, BBC, CNN, People Television, ITV News, and more. Sarah, thank you for bringing you and your superpowers in the space community here to Space For You. Thank you so much for that incredible introduction. I think that's one of the best introductions I've ever had. So I'll try and keep up with the huge introduction I've had. And thank you for having me. I'm joining you live from London from my spare room slash walk-in wardrobe with my NASA sweatshirt on because this is 2020 and this is how we have to do things at the moment. Exactly. We're all learning. We're all having our Apollo 13 moments and modifying our own personal spacecraft to survive what is the pandemic. Sarah, I got to ask you, as someone who was growing up in Wales, I'm curious as to your first memories and impressions of the space program and what was so attractive about it to you. Well, yeah, that's right. I was born in Wales and then I actually grew up in or near a place called Hull, which is in the northeast of England. And to be honest with you, I can't remember a time when space hasn't been my passion. And literally one of my first memories was of looking up at the moon and being inspired by looking up at the moon and then I I remember learning about the planets at school and I must have been around six or seven years old so right at the beginning of school and learning about the planet Venus and it was this world which was so impossibly different to our own and it just blew my mind that something so foreign so alien could exist in our, our solar system and then I just consumed everything I could about space I had the uh, telescope and books I remember really being inspired reading a book by the author Andrew Shakin called A Man on the Moon, which um, basically he interviewed all of the Apollo astronauts bar one. And it's this incredible anthem, or anthem, um, incredible collection, I, I guess. Anthology. Anthology. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a writer and I don't I'm looking the at the, I'm looking at the book set <laughs> in my bookcase right now as you're talking about it, but go ahead. Oh, you got, you've got that book? I've got it. I've got that and a lot of them. Yes. That book was one of the ones which inspired me. It taught me, I, I'm a child of the 90s, but it, it taught me about Apollo. And, and I remember being inspired about the tale of Gus Grissom and 
obviously it was a, an unfortunate end to Gus's life, but all that he achieved and, and how you don't have to always um, succeed to be successful because the results of the Apollo 1 fire ensured that no NASA astronaut was actually killed in space during the Apollo missions. And I was really inspired by that. I was lucky enough when I was 16 years old to win a scholarship to space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. So I traveled from the UK to America on my own to go to space camp, which really changed my life. And I remember seeing... Um, this sign as you enter the dormitories, basically saying, through these doors walks America's next scientists, astronauts and engineers. And it just really continued to inspire me and really stuck with me. So yeah, for me, my whole life, space has been my passion. It's there from the start. And there's so many space stories I could give you. But I, for me, I would always say to people who ask, why would you care about space? My answer would be, why would you not care about space? You know, it's as much about philosophy and a search for meaning as it is about science. and um, for me, all the possibilities, all the wonder that lies out there and the fact that all of us alive today are living in a time where space is no longer something we can dream about, but something we can actually achieve and you know, see humans go to space. That's an incredible privilege. So it's a, it's a lifelong passion for me. So as someone you talked about being a young person traveling to the United States and going to space camp, that had to have been a bit of what I would say... I don't know if culture shock is the right word, but again, let's talk about it, you know, diving into the deep end of the pool. You're going into literally a space town and space community and spending a, a significant amount of time. Was that the time that it really solidified for you that, hey, this is an area I want to play in? I think, you know, it'd be fair to say space camp changed my life. I think all kids should be able to get scholarships to space camp. I grew up in a very poor part of the UK. I lived on welfare, single parent family. And so actually going to space camp, going to Huntsville, Alabama, was as far removed from my everyday life as going to the moon was. It was just completely impossible, something which I thought would never happen to me. And to actually be able to go there... And to realise, and I think a lot of things that space taught me is actually dreams do come true. And, and if you dream hard enough and work hard enough, you can achieve the impossible. And going to space camp, meeting like-minded people when I was 16 years old, really just taught me that if you work hard enough, you can achieve things beyond the imagination. You mentioned Gus Grissom in your early comments. Was it Gus Grissom or was there another person in the space community that really was very particularly inspirational to you that made you you know want to sort of follow their footsteps I think there's been so many people um, the story of Gus Grissom's always stuck in my mind from my childhood I was just a baby when the Challenger accident happened but I remember learning about the Challenger accident and I was inspired by Judy Resnick actually because she was a woman who um, didn't look like how astronauts were meant to look and, and she was succeeding in this man's world and, and pushing barriers and I, I found her story truly inspirational because often when we think about Challenger we think of the manner in which the astronauts tragically lost their lives but we should you know to paraphrase Reagan remember them instead for how they lived their lives and the story of Judy Resnick hugely inspired me as did the story of Eileen Collins you know the first woman to actually command a space shuttle mission and to, to fly a space shuttle again women breaking down barriers and it's no longer just about men who were doing science it was about it was women also who were succeeding in space exploration. So you go to Huntsville, Alabama, you spend time there, you start to follow your dream as you've discussed it there. I am curious, what made you make the decision to go into journalism as That's opposed to somebody who, you know, you could build it, you could fly it, or you could tell the story. You're a storyteller. You know, 
it, it's always funny. I always, when I give talks to kids, I'm always like, you know, don't do as I do, you know, go and be an engineer, go and be a scientist, but you know, and then talk about it. But for me, I'm in England, our education, education system is different to the United States. So we specialize at 16. So from 16 years old, I studied maths, advanced math, chemistry, physics, and general studies. And then I went to do astrophysics at university. And it was always my plan to do a PhD. And I went backpacking around South America while I was an undergraduate student for three months. And I saw parts of the world I couldn't even imagine. I, I saw poverty that I couldn't even imagine. I traveled to Brazil, Bolivia, Uruguay, and Argentina. And it, it really opened my eyes to the diversity, but also the unfairness of the world. And when I came back from that trip, I realized that I, I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to help people see what I saw. And I wanted to help, you know, inspire people about what's out there in the world. So I I decided not to do a PhD and I started whilst I was still an undergraduate working unpaid at a BBC local radio station just answering the phones and then it kind of spiraled from that I ended up getting paid work and then I did a master's in broadcast journalism down in London uh, and then I became a weather presenter for BBC television and then a science correspondent but still that that love of space stayed with me so when I was working as a weather presenter I would do breakfast television in the UK and then in the afternoons I would sell back stories in my free time and sell them back to the BBC about space exploration. And for a long time, it was really only the overnight radio shows which would take my stories about space. This was like 2010, 2011, and space wasn't as exciting 10 years ago as it is now. So that's kind of, I got sidetracked, you could say. I got sidetracked by a love of travel and foreign reporting. Since leaving the BBC, I've, I've reported from places such as North Korea, Rwanda, Uganda, the Congo, Moldova, Ukraine, Transnisteria, all of these crazy kinds of places. But my, my love of space has always stayed with me. So in 2012, I decided to leave the BBC and pursue space full time. So as someone who literally has traveled the world, you have a passport that I'm deeply envious of, uh, <laughs> of what you've been able to see and chronicle there. But I am curious, since you did take on, as you called it, space full time, what's the most exciting space story you've had a chance to cover? For me, it would be actually the one which made me decide to follow space full time. And that was actually STS-135. So I was working as a weather presenter at the time for the BBC. And I took leave from the BBC to go to Florida to, to be there for the final space shuttle launch. And I didn't have any commissions. And um, in England, we get a lot more paid holidays. So I took this as paid leave and decided to take a punt. And I ended up covering the final launch and landing of Atlantis, final, you know, final launch and landing of the space shuttle for the BBC. And it was being there on the space coast. Uh, and, you know, that was my first rocket launch as well. And the only time I saw a space shuttle launch. And it just, it, it changed my life. It, it was seeing that which made me realize I had to be part of the space industry. Obviously, it was a very different time back then. So there was this lull coming. And I remember visiting the Cocoa Beach area two years afterwards. And you could tell, you know, there was a slight decline in the area. There, there weren't as many jobs around. We're now seeing a boom back on the space coast, thankfully. But for me, covering Atlantis STS-135, it, it, it changed my life. It showed me about the possibilities to come from space exploration, about how you've got to dream your dreams and go out and make them happen. No one commissioned me from the BBC. I wasn't meant to be there. I just took it upon myself to go there. And, and luckily they didn't have enough reporters, so they ended up using me. But I think sometimes you've got to follow your own dreams. And it's great to see that human beings are flying once again from the Space Coast. 
So I'd like to get your take as, as an international reporter who descends into Cocoa Beach and the Space Coast and, and experiencing all of that. I'm curious as to, do you think you look at what America is doing in space differently than, say, an American correspondent might be looking at that? Is, do you think there's a difference in covering that story as an international reporter coming to the United States rather than having, you know, again, the staple American reporter who, uh, I will say, in some respects, you know, phones it in or, you know, tries to cover that launch, however they do that? Do you think there's a difference? I think to be fair, full disclosure, I have been living and working in the US for the last four or five years. So it's only this year I'm kind of locked in London and the United Kingdom. I normally split my time between the two countries. So I, I would like to say I'm an honorary American. Um, and I do know we're happy country. to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be there, but not this year. <laughs> because obviously, um, it's not possible this year because of the situation. But yeah, I think it I think when you're born in America, certainly if your passion is space exploration, you're lucky because if you want to be an astronaut, you can go out and become an astronaut. The United Kingdom only has one official government astronaut, Tim Peake, who launched the space in 2015. We had a few British people who became Americans to then join NASA and become astronauts. And then we had Helen Sharman, who was sent up by the Russians. But we've only had one official astronaut. So when you're, you're dreaming of space exploration, it's tough if you're born in the United Kingdom. It's better now because there is more of a an increasing space industry within the UK. But certainly for me, growing up, America was the place to be. So you're always kind of on that that back foot. But at the same time, you're incredibly grateful for the opportunities to be there. And, and you, Whereas I think if you're born in America, space is in your DNA. Whereas if you're not born in America, um, obviously I appreciate space exploration, but not everyone does because they, they don't see it in the same way that you might do if you live in the United States. So certainly as someone who's an international, I appreciate it so much and I've had to work very hard to get to the position that I'm in. But also it can sometimes be a, a tougher audience, whereas a US audience gets space or generally gets space exploration. It sometimes can be tougher in other countries communicating why space exploration matters. Well, do you think, do you look at the American program, space program differently than, say, the Russian and the Chinese programs, their space programs? That's a great question. I I am an optimist when it comes to space exploration. Um, I'm also involved with a great organization called Space for Humanity, which is a nonprofit dedicated to democratizing access to space. And what I'd really say is that title Space for Humanity sums it up because we go to space for all of humanity. So, yes. There are different national space programs, but really, if we're to succeed as a species in space, we need to, to work together. And largely, if you look at the International Space Station, for example, countries generally do work together. But for me, I mean, NASA's, I'm sat here wearing a NASA sweatshirt. NASA's this international brand, and it really is the gold standard almost for many people elsewhere around the world of what it means to, to explore space. I'm curious, I, I want to come back to this, this aspect of the international reporters in covering the space beat, because as you've described yourself as a world traveler, do you think these international reporters cover space differently than, say, American and Russian reporters might cover their, or even Chinese reporters cover their home country's programs? Is there a difference in an international reporter covering this? No, I, I think it's I think it's generally all the same. Obviously, I can't speak for Russian and, and Chinese space reporters, but I, I, I work for, you know, 
international outlets. So it's, it's always different audiences that you, you approach. But I, I think you're telling the same story. I, I mean, I've worked, one example I like to give is I was working in Uganda at the end of 2019. And I remember talking to our driver, Robert. So he's an airport taxi driver and he's never been on an airplane. Yeah, he's fascinated by space. He grew up in extreme poverty in a rural village in Uganda where he he literally lived under the stars, you know, no street lights. So he he knows a lot about space exploration, even though he's never even left the country or been on a flight. And and he knew about astronauts going to space and, and NASA and stuff like that. So I think the appetite is there across the world. It's just not in the same level that it is perhaps in the United States, but certainly you know, if you if you ask most young people, most kids, the two things they love most are generally space and dinosaurs. And many people sadly lose that passion as they grow up. But I think in America, there's more opportunity to hold on to it. But certainly space is a universal story. We go into space for all of humanity. You talked about NASA being the gold standard of what it means to explore. We have a whole new set of players that are now driving exploration besides NASA. And we've got private industry like SpaceX and Lockheed and ULA and Boeing and all of these other companies and and then emerging companies like Rocket Lab, et cetera. Do you think they have the ability to, I would say, become that future gold standard for space exploration that NASA already has established? Do you think that they're looked at differently? Many of those companies you've mentioned have, have been around for a long time, and it, certainly it's ones like Lockheed and Boeing. But I think NASA's a great international brand. You know, although I did once um, hear a story of how some, so you can buy NASA T-shirts around the world, and apparently a friend of a friend of a friend thought that NASA stood for not another selfie again. So there is still some international work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I had not heard that one. Had you not? <laughs> this is the problem when you put NASA branding on high fashion outlets, um, not in America. Sometimes people don't understand what the, the acronym stands for. So yeah, not another selfie again. So I think there's there's some work to do. But generally, NASA's a brand synonymous with space exploration. It goes hand in hand. And I know, you know, commercial space exploration's changing the way we do space. We've got this rise of new private commercial companies, plus all the old guard as well. But really... You know, and I appreciate NASA is going to change as an organization over the coming decades, but really it's an integral part of our space story. It's an integral part of what it means for humans to leave Earth. NASA is the only organization that has put human beings on the surface of the moon. You know, and, and I think NASA's, if you think of space exploration, most people, you know, and I can talk on behalf of England, I guess, um, and the United Kingdom, most people think of NASA first and foremost. Do you think the companies that we were just talking about there. Do you think they can develop a similar brand? Well, that's a great question. You you have a lot of great questions here. I, I think it really depends. I think SpaceX is definitely doing a great job. Blue Origin, you know, let's see, you know, I'm very excited with everything that's happening in Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, you know, absolutely. And I think as, the, you know, I always like to liken well, you know, government's always going first when it comes to exploration and then private industry follows. So actually what we're doing in space is no different to the way we've explored Earth. So I think it would be interesting to see how things change over certainly the next part of the century, you know, the rest of this century. But to me, NASA will always be NASA. It'll always be up there. No matter what we do in space exploration, they were there at the beginning. I'm curious, as you as you mentioned, being a child of the 90s and being a baby when the Challenger accident occurred and all of a sudden feeling very old <laughs> when you when you mentioned that. But 
I'm curious, uh, as someone who's a scientist and a communicator, in the course of watching this story unfold, how have you seen the global space story change over the years? I've seen more people sit up and take notice. I, I think there was there was a lull. Like when I loved space when I was in high school in the 90s and early noughties, space wasn't cool. Like, or well, certainly not in the United Kingdom, it just wasn't a cool thing. And then um, we obviously had the, the end of the shuttle era in 2011. And then there was this kind of this lull. And that's when I got interested in commercial space exploration. I'd run around chatting to TV companies and, and to editors about things like space mining or reusable rockets and people just weren't interested in it. They almost needed to see it to believe it sort of thing. So what I've really seen is a huge uptake, certainly within the last few years of people and and mainstream media, and I'm not just talking about the United States, I mean outside of the United States, actually taking interest in the space story and what's happening now. Space has suddenly become exciting again. You know, I wasn't around for Apollo, but it's almost comparable to what it was like during the first space race, during the era of Apollo. And it's 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 great to see. It's great to see that space is an international story and that so many people from across the world are excited. But I, at the same time, for me, space is always one of those great American stories. And I think as the entrepreneurial space age, as, as I describe it in my new book, continues, that's almost in the DNA of what it is to be American and that entrepreneurial spirit. So I'm super excited for all the changes we'll see in the United States in, in leading the way in exploring space in this new space era. I, I'm glad you brought up your book. That's a perfect segue for, <laughs> for the next question that I've got. And I hope you'll tell us a little bit more about Look Up. And, and let me frame it around this. As someone who's a storyteller and a scientist here, what's the best space story happening today that we're not talking about? Is that what Look Up it tackles? Or tell us a little bit more about the book. But I'm curious, as as the scientist and the communicator that you are, what's this global space story we're not talking about enough? That is a great question. That is a, I think it's the the value in space exploration to improve life on Earth because often we we talk about space being about going to, you know, the layperson, I mean, talks about space being going to explore new worlds. And, and most people on the street, they, they get frustrated because they're like, why are we spending so much money on space exploration when we've got all these problems here on Earth? And one of the biggest challenges we will face in the coming decades and we currently face, other than COVID, is our planet's changing climate. And so much climate science has come from space exploration, from the ability to go up and look back at Earth. And actually, the final chapter of my book is called Look Back. And I focus on the how we can use space exploration uh, to actually improve life on Earth and how the greatest thing to come from space exploration is that ability to look back. Because I think it was Laurie Garver who said that maybe our next moonshot should be about protecting Earth's climate and using all this space-based technology to look after spaceship Earth. Hearing that quote reminds me of a quote from um, one of the members of the Apollo 8 crew, we flew all the way to the moon only to discover the Earth. Well, I love that you say that because I use that quote in my book also. And I guess to answer the the first part of your two-part question, which is about my book, my book is basically a bit of my personal story, why I care about space so much. And then it's a story of how we got to space, you know, the history of humanity, how we're born explorers, how everything we did on Earth led us to this moment, to today, to, to being able to no longer dream or to wonder about what was up there in the stars, but to finally be able to, to reach for the stars, send humans to the stars. Then it takes in the, the story of the space race and then look at dedication, determination and sacrifice, the people behind space exploration and how 
you know, anyone who works in the space industry, you know, not just astronauts, but anyone, there's a certain amount of dedication there. And, and I think even as a layperson, you can take inspiration from the stories of people who've worked in the space industry, particularly from historical figures. So I, I talk about people such as Katherine Johnson, as well as Gus Grissom, one of my favourites, and also Krista McAuliffe, because she was a, you know, when I was researching this book, I went down quite a deep dive watching old videos of Krista. And she's always remembered as a teacher from the Challenger, but she was so extraordinary, so extraordinary. She um, planned on keeping a diary in space. And, and back in an era before social media, as the first ever spaceflight participant, she would have been the first ordinary person to keep a diary. And her inspiration came from early settlers to the United States and how they would keep diaries. And her message was to students that the ordinary person contributed to history and that she as an ordinary person would be contributing to history. And then the book looks at space on earth how you know like going to space has transformed space on earth then like the entrepreneurial space age where we're heading in our space future before finally concluding with look back the final chapter which is about how the greatest thing to come from space exploration is the ability to see earth and how that's changed people and I also have to give a shout out to astronaut Michael Collins because I'm so grateful that he took the time to write the forward for look up our story with the stars and it's it's just hugely inspirational that he's done that and his words and, and I feel like I've entered quite a, a stellar lineage because it was Charles Lindbergh who wrote the foreword for Michael Collins's book Carrying the Fire and now Michael Collins has written the foreword for my book so it's an incredible honor. There's no pressure there. No, no, There's no pressure there whatsoever <laughs> that you could possibly feel <laughs> on that. Let me ask you how did you connect with Michael Collins to give you that foreword for your book? Ah, that's a top, top secret. If you don't ask, you don't get, I think is that. But I, I, I've been lucky enough to work with quite a few of the Apollo astronauts. Um, I've worked with Buzz and, and, and Michael. So uh, it's just it's just one of those things. It's networking, isn't it? But I, I, I was so grateful to him for being involved with this book. You talk about history and, and recording that story. The UK has an incredible history of... Of, of literally pioneering the seas, exploring, and, and doing, literally opening new worlds. I, I'm curious as to your take on how you see the UK developing its place in the global space economy, and what do you see for the UK's future in space? Well, I think the, um, and I always like this, you know, it's a bit of a stereotype, but Americans are great at PR, and, and they shout about their achievements the UK doesn't. The UK is kind of awkward. You're like, you guys learn about public speaking in school. We don't. So we're, you know, mostly terrible presenters, not TV presenters, but terrible at presenting in front of audiences and stuff because we don't learn about it in school. We have to learn as an adult. And I think um, the UK often doesn't shout enough about its achievements. So the UK is a world leader in, in small satellites. And um, SSTL is a great company, for example. Clyde Space is another great company. The UK's doing a lot of great things in space. And I think what we'll see, um, certainly with organisations such as Virgin Orbit, which is going to be based down in Cornwall, which is in the southwest of the UK, or having a base in Cornwall in the southwest of the UK, is that we'll see a boom in the small satellite industry, which we're already seeing. And no, we won't likely have our own version of Cape Canaveral in the sense that we'll, we'll launch astronauts to space. But the UK certainly has got a huge and growing space industry, but just not in the same way that America does. But I think what we will also see over the coming decades as we see more and more humans go to space is a, is a change in the human part of spaceflight in the United Kingdom. 
I guess one of the things, well, uh, again, since you've been to Florida, you understand the issues with weather and launches. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I, th I think you will have encountered similar challenges in uh, uh, <laughs> launch facilities in good weather, uh, depending on where you want to launch there. Now, I want to come back to the aspect of you being the scientist and the communicator, because, again, I think you've had this experience where you can meet some absolutely brilliant people who literally could fly your washing machine backwards and land it on the asteroid or planet of your choice, but not be able to explain why that's a good idea. And I was struck at a comment that you made there about that the UK students aren't, uh, aren't given you know, public speaking lessons as they're growing up. Which, well, it may not maybe maybe not get as it's uh, much given as in the United States here. You know, we Americans, you know, we have an opinion. We'll tell you anything we anything that's on our mind and not stop. But I am curious about your experience of working with very technical people and helping to translate into common terms and the the challenge that has gone on with that. What would be the guidance that you would give to, again, these brilliant men and women about how they ought to be communicating with the public to help them understand the value that space is bringing to life on Earth? All your questions are fantastic. I, I think sometimes, not always, but we've got to remember if we're going to succeed in space exploration, we have to have everyone on board because if it's just a niche fraction of society that gets it, that understands why we go to space, that understands the science, then appetite and interest will decrease and wane and then there'll be questions over funding and so if we're going to go into space we need to do so for all of humanity so I think my my first argument to these scientists would be that if you want to succeed in what you're doing people need to understand about it you know you've got a responsibility not only to inspire the next generation to you know carry that flame of what you're doing and go that extra step further but also to inspire people from all walks of life because space enriches people's lives and one of the things I try and do with my work is inspire people of all different ages I don't care whether you're six or 66 or 106 you there's value in your life it just, you know going being inspired by going out and looking up a little bit more and particularly in what has been a difficult year for so many I feel like space exploration can provide hope so my ad advice to scientists would be and I, I think most scientists know this most scientists are becoming great at, at telling that story but is you know when we come to public funding certainly you need to talk about your work you need to explain what you're doing it but just if you want to succeed in general the more people who understand why you're doing what you're doing and why it matters so much, the better. You're an accomplished writer, an accomplished journalist, working with both industry as well as researchers in a lot of different areas. And now you've got the new book here. What is the book that Sarah Crudis wants to write next about oh. space? That is a great question. So I've done four books. Um, Look up is my fourth. Um, so I'm having a, a, a slight pause about space exploration. And maybe ask me that question about space exploration about books. Maybe ask that question to me in, in a couple of years, but certainly the concept of improving life on Earth. And, you know, there's a great author called Frank White who coined the term the overview effect. And I think as we see more and more humans go to space from all walks of life, it will be great to tell their stories. Okay, so with the advent of all these commercial flight opportunities, space flight opportunities coming about, how soon can we expect you to be reporting from Earth orbit? Oh my gosh, I'd love that. Earth orbit? I'm not sure, but maybe suborbital. Um, hopefully, it would be amazing, wouldn't it, We'd to have within the next decade journalists and film stars and, and, and 
social media stars, but also people from all kinds of backgrounds, people, you know, a woman from a village in India, how would she change her community if she went to space or, you know, a house husband from Arkansas? I think we need to send people from all walks of life into space, not just journalists, but of course, I think we're gonna, um, we're gonna see changes in the industry, you know, changes happening faster than many people can imagine. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the next few decades, we certainly saw journalists go to space, perhaps even this decade. Um, and that does change everything because, uh, you know, we sent scientists, engineers to space fewer than 600 humans have been to space most of them have been scientists engineers or military personnel or a combination of all three and they've come back artists they, they've come back and found religion or a deep love for our planet so what happens when you send the artists up or, or people who work in all different kinds of backgrounds how will they go back to their communities and, and communicate what they saw that is a fabulous point. And as you say that, I'm looking at my bookcase and seeing my book of Alan Bean of the art that yeah. he put up. And again, Michael Collins, who you have had the fortune of uh, meeting and knowing and writing the forward for your book is also a pretty uh, accomplished artist in, in watercolors, etc. So you're right. They have come back as very changed individuals. It will be interesting to see that switch. But I'm not going to let you go here until I ask this question of you, Sarah. And that is, as someone who has been a scientist, a journalist, and a writer, I want to know what your first words would be when you set foot on either the moon or Mars. That is a another great question. Top marks for all these questions. I feel like, because well, obviously we've had Neil Armstrong's iconic words, you'd, you'd have to reference those when you return to the moon but certainly not in the way that Pete Conrad did which was whoopee that may have been a, a long one for a, a small one for Neil but that was a long one for me and perhaps even the words of Gene Cernan who is of course the last human being to set foot on the moon but for me setting foot on Mars that, that changes everything because that is the beginning of humanity becoming a multi-planetary species and Mars is a place where we could potentially find evidence will hopefully find evidence to answer the question are we alone or not in the universe there could be microbial life still on mars we could find out that life on earth was seeded by a martian meteorite during the early formation of the solar system and even if none of that happens even if mars is completely barren it's our first step really into the cosmos and, and to no longer just existing on one planet so i guess my first words and i think this is such a tricky question it'd be something along the lines of by setting foot on another world, we do so not just for all of humanity, but for all those who came before us, because everything we do in space exploration is only possible because of those who took the first steps in space and, and, and those who explored Earth and, and those who left the caves and were curious enough to look up and to wander. So I think, you know, we're building on each generation and I think set foot on another world and to, to, to do something which seemed so impossible for humanity, you need to remember all those who came before you. And with that, Sarah, we're going to hold you to those words because I fully expect that you will be one of those persons that we see that is telling that story of a multi-planet species. Thank you for joining us. And with that, I want to commend to you Sarah's new book called Look Up, Our Story with the Stars. You can find that on any number of book outlets. So hopefully when we are in a post-COVID world, she'll be in a town near you and we'll be able to sign that book when we all as a space community can start to gather again. But again, her book is called Look Up, Our Story with the Stars. 
And that is going to conclude this conversation for the Space for You podcast. Please remember to keep an eye on what we're doing with the Space for You podcast by going to spacefoundation.org. And don't forget our new digital platform, Space Symposium 365, that is bringing not just only the legacy content of our previous space symposiums, but also exclusive programming that you will only hear on Space Symposium 365 from newsmakers and leaders from across the world. That concludes this episode of the Space for You podcast. And remember, at the Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thank you.